Well, good evening, LCU! Good evening! Tonight we will continue our study on the book of Acts, oh, yeah. which chronicles the works of Jesus being continued through the church, which is his body on earth. Up to this point in Acts, we have seen the establishment of his government through the twelve apostles, the expansion of the gospel radiating outward from Jerusalem, and the mysterious inclusion of even the Gentiles. Yeah. Yeah. Our studies have truly illuminated our perspective and yeah. given us deeper insight into the glorious light that is the Word of God. This kingdom expansion that we are witnessing in the book of Acts was, and still is, an unconquerable and unstoppable force. Amen. Fueled by the spirit of grace and carried on the shoulders of faithful believers who have been set free from their chains and yeah. now walk about on the way come of on. holiness, Amen. beckoning hungering souls to come out of the darkness and into the light. Come on. As we stand before you tonight to teach on the expansion of the gospel into the whole world, our brothers are 6,000 miles away shining a light in Romania. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Pastors Eric, Nick, and Judah, as well as Miss Jen and Abby, are working tirelessly with believers to raise up the next generation in Come the on. Balkans. Come on. They are acting as the hands and feet of Jesus, and through their sacrificial acts of obedience, ancient hostilities are being reduced to rubble. Relationships are being restored, and families are being strengthened. Hungering souls are being fed, and a launching pad for sons to be sent into the Middle East is being built. Like the church in our chapter tonight, we will war in the heavenlies through prayer to see the chains broken off. Captives set free, and the kingdom of Adonai expanded. Yeah. Through our faithful devotion and unbroken resolve to see every nation reached, we will see the victorious church of, of Jesus shine brightly in the midst of darkness. Amen. Listen to Proverbs 4, picking up in 18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter Till the full light of day. Come on. Where our Lord decides to plant us as his witnesses on earth, we will be like the first gleam of dawn for those bound over to darkness. And his light in us will increase till the full light of day. Amen. His light in you will increase till the full light of day. This is the testimony of the first century church, and it is your destiny in Christ to see this happen. Come on. Church, don't despise the day of small beginnings. The Lord will use the ones who are willing and transform their tenacity into a torch to be carried through every nation on earth. Amen. So let's jump into our review so that we can engage with the chapter tonight and make the necessary connections to the things we have learned up to this point. Last week, we learned about the power of a twofold witness. Peter saw a supernatural event occur with the Gentile believers at Cornelius' house in Acts 10. And in Acts 11, he is telling the testimony of what the Lord has done. This mysterious work of the Lord was not the will of any man, but the work of Adonai. This was always a part of his sovereign plan, and he will always confirm his will with a twofold witness to the sons of God. His word and spirit are never in disagreement, and the two serve as a confirming testimony to his people of what his divine will is. Peter's example 
displays what it means to be led by the Spirit and discover the confirmation of the Word. Yeah. You can clearly see this in the leading of Peter in the Cornelius event and then his remembrance of the words of Jesus in Acts 1.5. John baptized with water, but soon you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter witnessed the outpouring of the Spirit on the Gentiles and heard them speaking in tongues. As the Spirit is confirming that, his will is to fill the Gentile believers, the words of Jesus came to Peter as a second witness that solidified the revelation that salvation was being granted to the Gentiles. You remember the double witness last week, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of witness becomes even more beautiful when you realize that the disciples in Jerusalem also received a double witness regarding the door that was being opened to the Gentiles. One witness came as Peter and his uh, six traveling companions were telling or retelling how Cornelius' house Cornelius House, Cornelius House. received yeah. the word and the spirit. And the second witness came as they learned that the Gentiles in Antioch had received the word of God. Yeah. So let's review a passage from last week. That's Acts 11:20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So it is not within our scope tonight to review last week's teaching on Hellenistas, but you now have a deeper understanding that the brothers from Cyprus and Cyrene were seeing salvation come to the Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, at the time that Peter was having his experience in Cornelius' house. This is beautiful because the Lord loves, loves a double witness to His will. Yeah. Adonai's orchestration of these events shows His sovereignty and His desire for all men to be saved. We would all do well to see these patterns in the Word and praise His name for making men like the Jewish apostles a light that illuminated the dark Gentile world. Amen. So we've learned that it's Cornelius' house, not Cornelius's. Yeah. Carlos is actually helping with me with my English. <laughs> well, I get it wrong. <laughs> so the inclusion of Gentile believers was a monumental step that changed the course of history forever. You remember talking about that last week? Yeah. So now we're going to take a moment to consider some of the repercussions of this move of the Spirit and its impact on every nation of the world. The inclusion of Gentiles changed the world because without Gentile inclusion into the faith of Abraham, there would be no Judeo-Christian influences on the world. You can look at any kind of map and the nations that are reportedly Christian, and if you remove their present government from the world, you would have a vacuum that's created. Without Gentile inclusion into the faith of Abraham, Western civilization as we know it would not exist. So without the gospel, Europe would not have experienced the Protestant Reformation or the Renaissance. There would be no age of exploration that brought the gospel all over the world and ultimately to America. That's right. Without the events of Acts 10 and 11, your sweet country, tis of thee, would not be a land of liberty. There would be no United States that was founded on the preface of religious liberties and the freedom to worship the God of the Bible. If there was no United States, well, we think you get the point. If Peter and the Jewish men with them did not set aside their preferences, their taboos and distinctions, 
We would find all nations today in a state of utter idolatrous chaos and without the light of the Tanakh and the revelation of Messiah. Yeah, man, that's good. So you will remember from last week that there was one particular issue that was causing tensions to rise among some of the Jewish believers as Gentile believers began getting filled with the Holy Spirit. The issue was that the people had some non-scriptural social taboos and preferences. The instruction from heaven to Peter was that he should go with men from Cornelius without making a distinction. Then, when he went to share the revelation with his Jewish brothers, and because of their social taboos, they separated themselves from Peter. Let's review those occurrences and the Greek word that you are becoming intimately familiar with. Oh yeah. So diakrino is the issue. In Acts 10.20, Peter is told to get up and go down to accompany men without diakrinomenos. This means without making a distinction or separation between himself and them. In Acts 11.2, Peter goes up to Jerusalem and the circumcision criticized him. They diakrinanto him. This means that they showed a distinction or separation between themselves and him. Acts 11.12, Peter recounts to the circumcision what the Spirit told him using the word diakrinata. These are all words that have the same root and mean to make a separation. So family, there is not one flaw in the plan or word of God. Amen. Issues like diakrina arise when we favor what we think is right instead of what Adonai says is right. This is what leads to preferences that put up satanic barriers between brothers. These preferences and taboos are an ancient strategy that Satan uses in order to separate people from one another. This is how non-scriptural taboos work. They first divide you from men that you thought were different on some point, that you thought you really had a good reason to separate from, and then they divide you from men that you thought were just like you. The non-scriptural taboo first separated Jews from Gentiles, and then went on to separate Jews from other Jews within the same community. The fact that the church in Acts is beginning to come into the realization that their preferences and taboos don't align with what Jesus desires, and they repent, is proof that Jesus is perfecting his church, and the members of the body want his glory and not their own. Another facet that you have gained insight from was Peter's bold repentance from Diacrino. All of us can relate to Peter in difficult situations because he struggled initially, but ultimately obeyed. The best part is that he led his Jewish brothers into the same revelation and into the same freedom. This inspirational account of Peter's testimony has shown us the true strengths of Peter's character. He humbly accepted what the Lord revealed to him and then boldly went to testify to his brothers without hiding the areas that he failed in. Come on. In full transparency, he gave an accurate accounting of what happened and how the vision had to be shown to him three times. This would have reminded Peter of the times that he had failed threefold in the past. But he is showing us what holy masculinity looks like. Yeah. Peter has no regard for his own reputation. He is secure in his sonship and is eager to shine a light on previously a previously under-illuminated facet of Adonai's plan to his brothers, i.e. the inclusion of Gentile believers. The response of the believers, the Jewish believers, shows the pro- power of a faithful witness like Peter 
that preaches the full gospel without any regard for his preferences or the non-scriptural taboos of others. So in light of that, let's review the response of the believers in Acts 11, picking up in 18, where it says, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance and delight. Hallelujah. Church, when we hold the word of God and the spirit of God higher than our own preferences, then satanic walls of separation begin between men begin to fall, and the kingdom of God begins to burst forth in glory. Oh, it bursts. It bursts. Moreover, we also came to appreciate the normative Christian experience in the first century. Yeah. Whether Jew or Gentile, they all received the Holy Spirit in the same way and spoke in other tongues. Consider the illusion of the first time with us for a moment. At the time that Acts 10 and 11 were taking place, there was not the mountain of doctrinal debate surrounding those events like we have today. You have plenty, plenty of teaching available to you on that subject, and we encourage you to review your discipleship training notes. The conclusion you will draw is that the normative experience of the baptism of the Spirit is hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Yeah. Yeah. When the men at Cornelius' house displayed the evidence of receiving the Spirit, just as the Jews had, the conclusion was that Adonai must grant, must be granting even the Israelis, Gentiles, repentance unto life. Sorry, Gentiles. This infilling of the Spirit of Jesus was quite literally a light to the Gentiles. The events in Acts 10 and 11 put the spotlight on the separation between two people groups that the Lord wanted to unite through the blood of Jesus into one spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was so much more than simply speaking in tongues. Yeah. Actually, the evidence of speaking in tongues is the result of something much more powerful going on in the soul of the believer. This baptism in the Spirit is the evidence of God's acceptance of any man into the eternal kingdom under the reign of Jesus the Messiah. If the Lord has not made a distinction between men and chooses to fill them with the Spirit, then it would be sinful and rebellious of us to disagree with His will or try to invalidate the experience that men are having when they encounter His presence. But this kind of rebellion is not what is being portrayed in the book of Acts. Yep. It may have taken the Jewish believers by surprise initially, but it will soon take the world by storm as our chapters progress. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Christians, in our chapter last week, we came to the, one of the first subtle deviations from the Hebraic nature of our faith. Let's go to this slide titled Christians or followers of the way. The word used was Christianos. A name given to the disciples or followers of Christ, first adopted in Antioch, and it does not occur in the New Testament as a name commonly used by Christians themselves. The believers first became known as Christians as an appellation or title of ridicule. So, in all of the Pauline letters, the word Christian does not appear even once. Yeah, take that. There are two occurrences of pagans calling believers Christians in the book of Acts, and there is one, only one other occurrence in the first letter that Peter wrote. And the context of Peter's letter suggests that people are suffering as Christians. So our point is not to demean the term as it is used today, but to enlighten you as to the origin of the term. Yeah. 
As followers of the way were sent out into every corner of the world, they served as a light that drew attention everywhere they went. Yeah. Some people loved them for the hope that they brought in such dark, despotic times, and others hated them for it. Amen. The word Christian was most likely used by outsiders as an appellation of ridicule. In some sense, it is admirable that we have taken the term and turned it into a compliment. But in another sense, it represents a more Greek designation for the church than the church actually used for itself. This is the beginning of a satanic attempt to redefine the followers of the way given to Israel as something that has no connection to Jews, Jerusalem, or the promises given to Israel. So one point that is absolutely crucial to grasp is that the Bible never represents our faith as a separate religion from Judaism. Come on, right. If anything, our faith should be seen as the completion of true Judaism. However, the drift in terminology became cemented in the minds of people during the 3rd and 4th centuries. This led Christians and Jews to see themselves in two distinct and irreconcilable religions. Even the term conversion represents transition from one religion to another and should only be rightly applied to a pagan. You following us on that? Yes. Someone from Judaism doesn't convert to Christianity. They complete their faith in Judaism. Amen. A pagan converts yes. and leaves that behind to step into the faith of Abraham. The early testimony of our faith is about the transformation of Jews into reliance on Adonai's, Adonai's Messiah, thus completing or perfecting their faith. The Jews never stopped being Jews. They were just men who followed the way outlined in the Tanakh that Adonai prescribed in advance with Judaism. So last week we ended our chapter highlighting the famine that Agabus prophesied about, which took place during the reign of Claudius. The response from the church in Antioch was to send relief to the brothers in Judea by sending gifts by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This was a beautiful display of devotion among the disciples and shows the true love that they have for the brotherhood in the midst of a famine. Fidelity unto death and loyalty unto life has been the attitude from the beginning. The historical backdrop for the end of chapter 11 and our chapter tonight is dark and difficult. But the church is shining and a shining beacon of hope. And even though the rulers of the day are seeking to build their own kingdoms at the expense of others, the church is shining brightly. Amen. Now, the church is at the forefront of changing history forever by reflecting the heart of Adonai for all people to be saved, first for the Jews and then for the Gentile graftins with them. Okay, you still remember what we read last week, right? Yeah. You sound a little quiet today. So this example lets, helps us draw some powerful parallels in Scripture. While Herod is acting as an overlord, withholding food from the people of Tyre, which you will see today, he is putting himself in the position of God to be, view, to be viewed as a great leader who possesses the power to sustain the people in a famine. His ambitions only serve his purposes and evil desires. In contrast to this, the church who is welcoming Gentile believers into the faith of Abraham 
and together, all of them are making personal sacrifices and giving out of their own poverty to benefit the church. This is what true community looks like. In the darkness, in the darkest of seasons, and in the middle of a famine that is affecting the known biblical world, the church comes together to support each other, and the result is that everyone is provided for. So it was the death of a faithful Jew named Stephen that sent men into the Gentile world to carry the light of the gospel. And it was the love of a resurrected Jew named Yeshua that brought the Gentiles to a place where they desired to send provision back to the Jewish world. As you engage with the text, you can tangibly feel the affection that the new Gentile believers, as well as the Jewish believers in Antioch, have for their brothers in Christ struggling in Jerusalem. The custodians of the way have graciously shared their spiritual blessings with those not born into Israel. And now the ones that they have blessed are given the opportunity to provide for them in their time of need. Yeah. So this reminds us of what Paul writes in the book of Romans. Romans 15 verse 27 says, They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings... They owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So as it pertains to Jews and Gentiles, the Jews who rightly handled the word of truth and saw the grace of God extended to the ones they once saw saw as outside of the will of Adonai are now being encouraged and supported by them. We encourage you tonight to consider how you view those that are not currently following the Lord. If you will allow your self-made walls of hostility fall, before the will of the Lord, then today's enemies can be transformed into your closest companions tomorrow. The breaking down of your diacrine and satanic barriers causes your light to shine on men in darkness who will come back to bless you in your time of need. The people you sacrifice to pour into now will be the ones to bring you provision later. Amen. Amen. A key detail revealed in chapter 11 was the fact that the famine occurred during the reign of Emperor Claudius. Do you guys remember that? Uh This is important because it is our first time stamp in the book of Acts that allows us to accurately pin down the years during which the current events are occurring or happening in the book of Acts. And also the span of time that has elapsed (coughs) since the 12 apostles were validated by fire during Shavuot. So when Claudius, emperor over Rome... And, uh, so when did Claudius emperor over Rome reign, and when did the famine occur? Let's look at our next slide, the famine of Claudius. So in the time of Claudius, Claudius was emperor of Rome from 41 through 54 A.D. The famine may have begun in 40 A.D., but reached its pinnacle in 44 through 48, as reported by the first century Jewish historian Josephus. We don't know the exact date that Agabus made the prophecy, but we do know that it was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius, which was between 41 and 54 AD. The famine reached its pinnacle between 44 through 48 AD, uh, that was according to Josephus. This means that Agabus had to have made the prophecy before that time period, right? Therefore, the events that we have just read about in Acts 11, along with the prophecy by Agabus, occurred in the late 30s or early 40s. 
Moreover, the chapter we are reading tonight will even allow us to pinpoint with greater precision the exact year in which James, the brother of John and son of Zebedee, died. Acts chapter 12 starts with the following. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So remembering that there are no chapter breaks in this papyrus scroll, in this two-part work, we can determine that the events in the chapter tonight occurred approximately concurrent to the famine described in chapter 11 and in the reign of Emperor Claudius. So while we read the events of chapter 12, remember that the famine is going on and Saul and Barnabas are bringing provisions from Antioch to the believers in Judea. This is made even more clear, noting how chapter 12 ends tonight. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Therefore, it can be safely understood that the delivery of the famine relief provisions by Barnabas and Saul was occurring approximately concurrent to the death of James, son of Zebedee, Peter's imprisonment and miraculous release, and Herod Agrippa's death as he is eaten by worms. So just to recap this, because some of you look pretty lost right now. (laughs) The beginning of chapter 12, in verse 1, says that it was about this time that King Herod arrested. About what time? Well, the time previously told about in chapter 11, which was under the reign of Claudius and the famine that occurred in chapter 11. That famine occurred in chapter 11, and by the end of chapter 12, you have Barnabas and Saul returning from bringing provisions to the people in Judea. So what you're seeing is that all the events that we're seeing in chapter 12 occur around the same time span, pretty much concurrently with the famine. And so we have our time stamp in the book of Acts. And indeed, it is Herod Agrippa's death that, that allows us to determine the exact year in which James, the son of Zebedee, was executed. Let's read our next slide to illuminate this point. This comes from Josephus. So the death of Herod Agrippa I gives us the date of James' death. Josephus says, And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 44th year of his age, and in the seventh year of his reign. For he reigned four years under Caius Caesar, Three of them were over Philip's tetrarchy only, and on the fourth, he had that of Herod added to it, and he reigned besides those three years under the reign of Claudius, in which he reigned over the forementioned countries, and also had Judea added to them, as also Samaria and Caesarea. So, if math is not your thing, the BKC summarizes the math for us in this next entry. He was known for doing everything possible to curry the favor of the Jews, so he found it politically expedient to arrest Christians and to execute James, the brother of John. Herod Agrippa I died in A.D. 44. So let's summarize what we know at this point. Tonight's chapter features the death of two individuals, James, the son of Zebedee, and Herod. But which Herod are we talking about? Josephus is referring to Herod Agrippa I, and his death, which was accompanied by a pain in his belly. He gives us the mathematical formula by which we can calculate the exact year in which Herod Agrippa I and James, the son of Zebedee, died. 
Since Claudius Caesar reigned from 41 to 54, and Josephus states that Herod Agrippa I reigned for three years under the reign of Claudius Caesar, then 41 plus 3 is 44. There you go. This means that both Herod Agrippa I and James, the son of Zebedee, died in 44 AD. That's important, and you're going to want to remember that. They both die in the same year. So you could trust us in the math or refer to the BKC commentary. At this point, you may not be sure, though, about the relevance of determining this date. We will let you ponder this question for the time being, and we will progressively answer that question through our chapter tonight. Yeah, many times when we read through the New Testament, we don't really grasp how dark these times were. This is because we don't know about the evil rulers that governed the land of Israel and its surrounding territories. Moreover, in general, we do not have a clear understanding of the contemporary but extra-biblical events occurring during these times. We are going to help you with that today. So let's look at a few slides to grasp some of the context and the character of the rulers during New Testament times. This slide is on the Roman emperors on the first century. You're going to get a little history lesson today, which I know will help you gaining the context for this chapter. So first, Emperor Caesar Augustus called Octavian. Then comes Tiberius, then Caligula, then Claudius, and then Nero prior to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. A few fun facts about these emperors. Fun. Yeah. Caesar Augustus, he reigned during the birth of Jesus. He proclaimed himself as the son of God, known as a difficult and brutal man who was given to severe delusions. Tiberius, he reigned during the public ministry of Jesus and during the time of Pentecost, Shavuot, expelled all Jews from Rome in 19 AD. Caligula suffered a serious mental illness that left him mentally unstable. He became unpredictable, demanded worship as God, persecuted the Jews, and ordered that an image of himself be set up in the temple. He was assassinated by his own guards, and we will not get into all the sexual debauchery that he also got involved with. Claudius, he lived a scandalous life, expelled the Jews from Rome again, as you'll see in Acts 18 verse 2, and was poisoned by his wife to secure the throne for her son. Beautiful. Nero, he murdered his mother and became a tyrannical despot who ruled with increasing terror, claimed divinity, as many of these others did, and pursued with intense persecution the Christians. This is the emperors of Rome. Yeah. Well, at least this kind of evil was only performed by the Roman emperors and not the regents that they put over the land of Israel, right? So you may remember from our studies in the book of Chronicles, Jeremiah and Ezra Nehemiah, that the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem back in the year 586. It was at that time that the southern kingdom of Judah ceased being an independent nation under its own independent kingship. The Babylonian Empire later fell to the Medo-Persian Empire, which later fell to the Greek Greek Empire. You guys are good. Under Alexander the Great, when Alexander died, his empire was divided, giving rise to the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires. It was from the Seleucid Empire that the infamous Antiochus Epiphanes would rise and eventually turn the Jerusalem temple into a temple to Zeus. 
and he sacrificed swine on the altar. It was this event that triggered the Jewish revolt headed by Mattathias, who was a priest of the Hasmonean family. You would know them as the Maccabees. Take a look at this slide showing the Hasmonean dynasty family tree. So we're obviously going through a lot of history, but the point of this is to show you how dark the biblical times yeah. were. If any people in the room have been tempted to think that, you know, America's on a downturn and it's a unique situation in all of history, you are wrong. The entire Bible was written in one of the darkest times that can ever be had on the earth. We're going to go through this slide, and the point of this is not so that you remember every person in the Maccabean family. The point is that we want to show you how the Herods came to power in Israel. Would you like to do that? Yeah. yeah. So obviously we're not going to focus on every detail of the tree, as that's not the purpose of our study tonight. However, we want to point you to some key details. Although the Jewish revolt started with Mattathias, it was under his son, Judas, or Judas Maccabee, Judas the Hammer, that the temple would be rededicated. Jews commemorate this event with the celebration of Hanukkah. Now, Jonathan and Simon, as you'll see on the slide, Judas' brothers continued to wage war against the Seleucids for about 20 years. However, it would be under the leadership of Simon, the, the youngest brother, in 142 B.C., that Judea would be recognized as an independent state. Very important in Israel. This was the beginning of the Maccabee dynasty ruling a free and independent Jewish state. So before the Herods came into power, we had an independent Jewish state. Wow. Jerusalem was ruled by the Jews. As time progressed, however, the Hasmonean dynasty became progressively Hellenized, Greekish, as is evident by the Greek names of the Hasmonean kings such as Alexander and Aristobulus. As you can see, the Hasmonean dynasty family tree flows through the generations until the year 37 B.C., when this man, Herod the Great, appears completely disconnected from the Hasmonean bloodline. He's not Jewish, and he's not related to any of them. This is because Herod the Great was installed as a puppet king over Judea by the Roman Senate and his friendship to these wicked and dark Roman emperors. You're following this slide, right? You have Mattathias, Judas Maccabee, following that, then Simon Jonathan, and the tree coming down, and you have what? Herod the Great, right there at the corner, appears all of a sudden. No relation to that tree. Herod the Great was king over Judea by the desire of Rome, but he was not the king of the Jews. A title that he would covet, as evidenced by the scriptures, as he massacred all infants, two years and younger, in an attempt to kill the true king of the Jews. The following are some, some, some fun facts about Herod the Great. On his father's side, he was an Edomian from Edom, from a family of Edomian converts that were forcefully proselytized, circumcised. On his mother's side, he was an Nabataean. Uh, his mother was a Nabataean princess from an Arab, Arabic tribe in southern Jordan. So as you can see, not Jewish. He married 10 women in total. And one of his wives was Marianne, that is shown in the slide. Also shown in the slide in blue color, are all the people from the Hasmonean family whom he executed. You see those blue guys? Yeah. He executed all of them. 
in, an effort, in, in the efforts of banishing anyone who would be a rightful Hasmonean heir to the throne. That's right, he killed his wife, Mariam, his mother-in-law, Alexandra, Hyrcanus II, Antigonus, Aristobulus III. Wow. And content with executing those who came before him, he also killed those who came after him. He grew paranoid of rival factions over his throne, so he resolved to execute three of his sons. Wow. That's a good guy, huh? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, not a good guy. The opposite of a good guy. <laughs> so let's pick up on a less bloody note. He was the definition of a megalomaniac. He was obsessed with his own power and his own glory. As a result of that, everywhere he went, he left permanent images and structures on the landscape, like theaters, temples, palaces, baths, aqueducts, fortresses, hippodromes, gymnasiums, and the like. And these were some of the most magnificent magnificent. I can't talk. Magnificent structures of their kind. Hence, continually leaving a mark on history to glorify himself. True. His most magnificent project, love that word tonight, magnificent project, was the expansion of the Jerusalem temple. However, this was not out of zeal for the house of God, but with the intent of glorifying himself and winning the people's favor. Yeah. This is clear by the fact that not only did he expand the Jerusalem temple complex, but he also built temples to the divine Caesar Augustus all throughout the land. Mm. He founded two thoroughly Hellenistic cities, Caesarea Maritime and Sebaste, which is Greek for Augustus. He did all this by breaking the backs of the people of Judea, who toiled for the benefit of Herod's glory. Now say moreover. Moreover, moreover, Herod the Great died in a manner that you will surely find very interesting given the way in which his grandson is said to die in our chapter tonight. Josephus states the following about Herod the Great's death. But now Herod's distemper greatly increased upon him after a severe manner, and this by God's judgment upon him for his sins. For a fire glowed in him slowly which did not so much appear to the touch outwardly as it augmented his pains inwardly. For it brought upon him a vehement appetite to eating, which he could not avoid to supply with one sort of food or other. His entrails were also ex-ulcerated, and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. An aqueous and transparent liquor also had settled itself about his feet. And a like matter afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. Nay, further, his privy member was putrefied and produced worms. And when he sat upright, he had a difficulty of breathing, which was very loathsome on account of the stench of his breath and the quickness of his returns. He had also convulsions in all parts of his body, which increased his strength to an insufferable degree. It was said by those who pretended to divine and who were endued with wisdom to foretell such things that God inflicted this punishment on the king on account of his great impiety. Wow. 
So, this is the great father of the Herodian dynasty. Wonder why Jesus wouldn't speak with him. Now, if this was the father, what would you expect of his sons? We are we are going thoroughly, so we're gonna I'm gonna we're gonna chop this up a little bit. Uh, but let's go to the next slide on the timeline of the Herodian dynasty. You'll see Herod the Great, the one that Justin just covered, who perished with worms. Uh, then you have Herod Archelaus, his son, Philip, his son, Herod Antipas, his son. And then you have Herod Agrippa I, who is grandson of Herod the Great, and Herod Agrippa II, who is grandson of Herod the Great. We've also given you the biblical references so that you know when these guys ruled um, concurrently with the stories in the scriptures. So the day that Herod the Great killed one of his sons, he also designated three other sons as heirs. Those are Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas, through in various regions of the land of Israel. We have uh, just quick subjects or quick facts about these guys. Archelaus massacred 3,000 pilgrims in his first Passover. Okay? Philip rebuilt the city of Panias, or <coughs> modern Panias, as, uh, who, uh, which is Caesarea um, um, Philippi. So, not a great city. This was a city uh, built to the nature god Pan. Okay? Antipas, which you know from the scriptures, he was already married, but when he was nearly 50 years old, he fell in love with his own niece, Herodias, who was already married to his half-brother, Philip. Okay? This is the marriage that John the Baptist denounced, which got him in prison, and then beheaded. Wow. All right? This same Herod Antipas is the one that wanted to kill Jesus in Luke 13, 31, a threat to which Jesus replied, Go and tell that fox, yeah. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and in the third day I will finish the, my course. The, the stories in the Bible, in the New Testament, all are concurrent with this evil, evil time that they were living in. Later, Caligula became emperor of Rome in 37 AD, okay, and he gave the tetrarchy to Philip, who had died. Then the same Caligula stripped Herod Antipas of his tetrarchy and gave it to Agrippa I. Agrippa I is the guy, is the Herod that we're reading about in today's chapter. When Caligula was assassinated in 8041, Emperor Claudius rose to power and granted Agrippa, who, has, who was his uh, childhood friend, the tetrarchy over Judea, Samaria, and Caesarea. So King Agrippa of tonight's chapter became king in a territory as large as his granddaddy Herod the Great had. Wow. He was ruler over all this land. So, needless to say, the physical and spiritual reality of the times which the followers of the way lived through was very dark. Yeah. Yeah. We know we just walked you through a lot of history. The point is that there was not a glimmer of light in these worldly kingdoms. And not only was the brick and mortar temple and Jewish leadership corrupt, the kingship over the land was not even of Jewish descent. It was both illegitimate and horribly wicked. However, it is through the darkest times that the followers of the way shine the brightest. As you will see today, the light of God shines through the followers of the way and darkness cannot overcome them. Famines won't starve them. Death cannot stop them. Chains will not hold them. And all opposing and proud forces will be 
subdued. Amen. I think at this moment we need the man who's about to be married to stand to his feet and pray for us as we jump into the chapel. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Mighty God, we lift your name up tonight, God. Lord, this is our great privilege, Lord, that we get to come together, God. Lord, we want to be men that establish masculine holiness, Lord. Lord, we want to change the nation, Lord. We want to change our families, Lord. Lord, we want to set an example for this world to see. Lord, the name that is above every name that has transformed us, Lord, we want to see that name be transformed out there, God, to transform them, Lord. Lord, we're asking, Lord, stir our souls tonight, God, that we may hear your word. Stir our souls tonight, Lord, that we may hear the very words of heaven to put them into practice, God. Lord, we love you and we value your word, Lord. Let us stand up as men and women of God, saying, Lord, no matter what the cost, we will stand with you, Lord, even if it costs us our very lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to cover every of our 25 verses tonight, and Pastor Wade is going to read it for us. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some of some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. And uh, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. Uh, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. <laughs> After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Uh -oh. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. 
He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Mm. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Yeah. Mm. But the Lord, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. Yeah. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Well, we have an exciting chapter tonight. We're going to dig straight in. So if we can get Linton to read verse 1 and 2, we're going to get rolling. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So as we are thinking about what was just read, it can be difficult to put yourself in the seat of the first century audience and think about the feeling of what this must have produced in the church. Yeah. The James that is mentioned here is the brother of John. And this is taking place only 11 years after the ascension of Jesus. This James was called a son of thunder. He was called Boanerges. He is the first apostle mentioned in the Bible to be martyred and the second believer to give his life for the gospel. He is one of only 12 men who were selected to be apostles at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he was with Jesus from the beginning. Not only was he one of the 12, he was one of the only three witnesses to the transfiguration of Jesus. He was one of only three men that Jesus allowed to be present during Jesus' miracle of raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was one of three men that Jesus took with him to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Wow. James was a very important man to the followers of the way. Yeah. You have to imagine the impact that this had on the first century church. Yeah. Yeah. This would be much like LCM losing Pastor Matt. How devastating would that feel to lose such an important and pivotal witness amongst our fellowship? Yeah. Wow. We're grasping the illusion of the first time, Pastor Matt. Yeah. So as you let the weight of that thought settle in you, consider the outcome, what the outcome would be. We all admire Pastor Matt, don't you? Yes! And the thought of losing him makes our stomach turn inside out. Yeah. Yeah. But such an event would in no way hinder the work of the gospel. Amen. That is because a man of God, like a beloved, our beloved Pastor Matt, has imparted the seed of the gospel into the hearts of sons, and his blood would be the water that causes those seeds to burst forth into exponential fruitfulness. The death of righteous men is always a catalyst to the light of the gospel shining brighter and brighter. This was the result of Jesus' death, Stephen's death, and James' death. When one man finishes his work, Adonai causes the, other, the, uh, the ones raised up to pick up their mantle and run with it into even greater work. Amen. This is why discipleship is pivotal in the church. Yeah. Yeah. We must continue to raise up the saints in this house and trust that Adonai will cause their, their footsteps to, con to continue where ours end. Amen. The church in the book of Acts certainly suffered repercussions and they felt the recoil of the shadow of the dark times that were upon them. 
But we want you to know that through this event uh, was a consequence of the blackness of the world, and it actually served to illuminate the light of the gospel even brighter. This event was not a random act of violence suffered by the weak. This event was actually a triumph that was prophesied by Jesus himself. Come on. Take a look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to pick up in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's a great way to start. (laughs) And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Amen. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. James was a man who had a hunger for the glory of God and a desire to follow him unto his death. When Jesus asked if he considered himself able to drink the same cup that Jesus would drink, he boldly declared with his brother John, We are able. Yes. This magnificent desire was met by Jesus prophesying to these two brothers that they would drink from the same cup. James was a man that shone in the midst of the darkness up to the very last day of his life. He must have lived every day in anticipation of the fulfillment of Jesus' word to him. Come on. Given that James was with Jesus in Gethsemane and heard Jesus pray, Father, if it is possible to take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. He must have lived every day of those 11 years, shining exuberantly and awaiting his time to share in the cup of Christ on earth and in the kingdom to come. Doesn't sound like a defeat to me, brother. It sounds like a victory because that's exactly what it is. Luke is masterfully weaving in the story of James with all the pertinent details to show you that this is what men of God and the church do in times of darkness. They shine. Amen. Now, if you think that was good, look at what else Jesus told him. Continuing on in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice that Jesus is teaching this as a response to James and John's question. James must have taken to heart what Jesus said. Specifically, that I came to give my life as a ransom. 
James lived his life serving others in Jerusalem, and he gave his life as he saw demonstrated by Jesus. Now, while Herod is lording his authority over Jews, and as we will see in this chapter over Gentiles as well, James is giving his life to serve the body of Jerusalem. You see, in tonight's chapter, this is a theme that is epic and broad. There are two kings in contrast with each other. There is the King Herod, who is lording authority, and then there's the true King Jesus, who is laying down his life and allowing his believers and followers to lay down their lives. Tonight, there are two kingdoms in contrast with one another. There is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, which the puppet false king of Jerusalem serves darkness and the true king of the world, alive in his body, through his spirit, is shining the light into the darkness in every way. Come on. So we want you to know that the story does not end there for James. James is the first apostle to give his life. Let's look at what his brother John wrote in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, starting in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, wow, sounds personal to me, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. James knew exactly what he was talking about when he wrote. I mean, John knew exactly what he was talking about when he wrote this verse. James was slain by the sword as and he was the first apostle to be martyred. John, his brother, was the last apostle to give his life to the Lord up to his dying breath. James and John and all the other apostles and members of the body in between are the forerunners on how to be a bright light during dark times. They serve to show the true examples of what the Spirit of Jesus empowers His body on earth to do. We should all endeavor to be the reflection of our glorious King, shining that true light into dark that will give light to other men. We must not be backing up or letting up or shutting up, but instead boldly advocating for everything that the Word of God declares despite what it costs to us personally. Yeah. So before we move to verse 3, we want to give you a few more historical insights before we move on. Listen to Luke 23, picking up in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions. But Jesus gave him no answer. So when Jesus was on trial, he was brought before Pilate, the governor of Judea, and he was brought before Herod Antipas, who was before the Herod we're going to talk about tonight. Jesus spoke with Pilate, but he refused to speak with Herod. That's because Herod was an illegitimate king, and Jesus Christ is the true king. In light of our chapter tonight, We will see the true kingship of Messiah at war with the false kingship of the Herods. Through every chapter in the book of Acts, we've seen the body of Messiah expanding into new territories and growing exponentially despite the dark and difficult times that were brought on by these false rulers. When you think about that, the overall view of the book of Acts will blow your mind when you think about how the church flourished in these conditions. So at this point, we want to review a slide 
from our intro to the book of Acts to refresh your memory. So we learned that Nero was emperor from 54 to 68 and died in June of 68. This is well attested to. So given that Acts does not mention the Jewish revolt of 67, the destruction of the temple in 70, or Paul's execution under Nero's reign, it is assumed for a variety of reasons that the book of Acts was compiled around AD 62 prior to Paul's execution in the following years. So what we learned from this slide is that the book of Acts is finished and compiled roughly around 62 AD. This means that assuming the crucifixion was in 33 and tonight's chapter takes place in 44, then the time frame from Acts 1 to Acts 12 is about 11 years. You have to marvel at what was accomplished oh, yeah. in just yeah. 11 yeah. years. Yeah. 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 Especially during the dark and despotic oh. times. The church went from 12 Galilean apostles to about 5,000 believers from Judea and Galilee. The church included a great many of the priests. The church then expanded to the tens of thousands and included Grecian Jewish believers. The church expanded northward to include Samaritan Jewish believers. The church expanded southward and included Ethiopian Jewish believers. The church then expanded to Galilee and it included even the Gentiles. Last week, we saw the church even begin to see Gentiles be grafted in areas as far north as Antioch. This all happened in 11 years. Wow. That's why 8044 was important at the beginning of this teaching. When you think about this, it is also important to understand that if Acts 1 to 12 was in 11 years, then Acts 12 to, about, to 28 is probably about 18 years. In a relatively short time of 18 years, we will see Jews and Gentiles come to faith in the outermost parts of the biblical world. The gospel will continue to radiate to areas of Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, Italy, and even Romania. And keep in mind that all of this was not done in times of perfect political harmony, easy economic opportunity, and relaxed religious liberty. All of this was accomplished, accomplished in the midst of the most troubling times that the world has ever seen. Yeah. All of this was accomplished while murder, envy, strife, intrigue, selfishness, and to make matters worse, famine was predominant. Mm. Which calls for a very important question. What is the record of your life in the past 11 years? <laughs> How long have you been saved? 13 over here. And what will be written in the heavens about your life for the next 18 years? The time is short, and the opportunity to shine is only getting greater. Amen. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 3. When he saw this, that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the last time we heard about the whereabouts of Peter was in Acts 11, as he took the report of the baptism in the spirit of the Gentiles back to Jerusalem. In this present verse, the context is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a feast that called, uh, called the Jews to do pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem. Now this is an interesting fact that reminds us of Peter's rabbi, who was also arrested during the Feast of Passover, or Unleavened Bread, a topic that we'll tell you more about as we progress in today's teaching. However, this means that, although not explicitly stated, the imprisonment of Peter is occurring in Jerusalem 
and potentially in the vicinity of the temple. The, the exact place is unknown, but most commentators speculate that he was held at the Antonio Fortress, which overlooked the temple area to the north and had entrances to both the temple courts and the city. Now, as fascinating as that is, I want to take another minor point. It's a minor point if you already interpret the passage rightly. But just in case, and for the sake of clarity, when you read this passage, you should not assume that Luke's terminology in stating that this pleased the Jews means that the totality of the Jewish population in Jerusalem was pleased with the execution of James. He is clearly using hyperbole here. We have already pointed out in our previous times together that the size of the Jerusalem congregation of Jewish believers in Messiah was already in the tens of thousands in Acts, by Acts chapter 6, with a great number of the priests having become obedient to the faith. Moreover, Peter is a Jew, and Jewish believers are praying for his rescue. Yeah. So when this says this pleased the Jews, he's not talking about all of the Jews, just the Judean leadership and those that are following them. What is indeed happening here is that the word of God, which is a sword that Jesus brought, has been piercing through the family of the sons of Israel, as described by Jesus himself in Matthew 10, 34-36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus said. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So clearly, the tension in this verse is not a matter of Jew versus Gentile or Israel versus the church, but rather between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light as it manifests under one family. Yeah. With that said, let's get into verse 4. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads before soldiers Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So this event will remind you of another event in the book of Acts. This is not the first time that Peter has been in prison. He's a very seasoned one. You will remember that in Acts 5, Peter and the apostles went through a similar event with an angelic deliverance. Yes. Due to the jealousy of the high priest and his associates, they were held under guard for the night. On this occurrence, Peter is imprisoned because of Herod's desire to please the people and carry their favor by persecuting the followers of the way. There had to be some fear among the soldiers Anytime they had to deal with Peter. <laughs> Up to this point, prisons and jail cells seem to be a pretty ineffective means of containing him. <laughs> you can see the insecurity they have in their excessive use of soldiers to guard him. If that was not enough, surely doubling the chains would make their efforts fail proof, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it was hard to lock Peter up. What, what can we say? <laughs> In our previous chapters, when the apostles encountered dark times because of corrupt Judean leadership, Adonai used their chains as an opportunity to show who was actually in authority. The same is happening to Herod. Herod is just a deceived authority, and he's about to have to 
delusion of his power revealed for what it is, yeah. a mere perception. Yeah. Do you remember what Jesus said to Pilate when he was going through the similar situation that Peter's in? John 19, 11 says, Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Yep. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. Jesus can say this to Pilate because he knows that Adonai is sovereign over all. There's not a ruler or kingdom who has dominion over Jesus Christ. Come on. Saints, as you look at kingdoms or rulers or presidents, if we want to call them that, when you see them rising up and proclaiming great power, remember that the Lord is in control and he's able to move them like chess pieces to ultimately play into his will. Yeah. The one who understands this about the Lord most in this situation is Peter. Yeah. He knows that Jesus is the ruler over all, and he is the one true king. Amen. We should not view Peter as a narcoleptic that cannot seem to keep his eyes open because he seems to sleep a lot in the scriptures. <laughs> but don't think of him that way in this passage. He's learned through his walk with the Lord... That it's in the darkest hour that light shines the brightest. Oh, the reason he can sleep peacefully while being bound by chains and surrounded by soldiers is because Peter walks about in the freedom of Christ. Amen. It's because Peter is bound to the word of God. And no matter where he is, whether he's on a mountaintop or in a prison cell, he's always surrounded by the presence Amen. of his king. Come on. You see, as Peter was drifting off to sleep, we can imagine that the words of Jesus to him were sounding off in his mind. Yep. Do you remember what Jesus prophesied to Peter in John 21? Yeah. Verse 17, Jesus said, feed my sheep. <laughs> I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands wow. and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. <laughs> Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. You see, not only is Peter willing to glorify the Lord through his death, he also knows that this moment won't come until he is old. <laughs> On this dark night, lying in a prison under heavy guard with two chains binding him and a pending trial under a murderous emperor the next day, he is able to rest in the sovereignty of his king. Church, that's beautiful. Yeah. When you have this kind of faith, you cannot be made a victim. Yeah. Yeah. Every dark circumstance simply becomes a stage for the light of your king to shine forth. Come on, yeah. man. You have no need to worry about how tomorrow will play out. Yeah, you are immortal until your work is complete, and you can dive deep into the sleep that the Lord grants to those he loves. Yeah. This also reminds us of Jesus sleeping on the boat with the gloomy tempest raging all around him. For those who are connected to the Father, like Peter and Jesus, the storms in your life will be brought into submission when the light of Christ rises up within you. So as we were getting ready to pick up in verse 7, we cannot move forward without highlighting how the church was praying earnestly for Peter. It is clear that the Lord was quick to act in light of Peter's faith and the prayers of his body. When the people of God pray, he hears them and answers from heaven. The book of Revelation gives us a depiction of what this looks like. 
Revelation 8, verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We must never underestimate the effectiveness of the church praying for the saints scattered abroad and suffering for the gospel. When the Lord answers from the heavens, it shakes the earth. Chains begins to break. Prison doors open wide and captives are set free. The dominion of darkness is drowned out by the light produced from the fiery prayers of the saints. So before we pick up in verse 7, church, do you believe that your prayers are powerful? Yes. Yes. Never underestimate what heaven will answer whenever you pray, when we pray as a family. That might change what we do after this meeting. And when you go home and we have our brothers ministering abroad currently, heaven answers in a magnificent way. It shakes the earth when those prayers are answered. Amen? Amen. Let's pick up verse 7. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Oh, come on. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's <laughs> Come on. So reading this verse, it occurred to us that Peter was not the only one that was held by chains. That's right. We were as well. This was all of our positions prior to the appearance of grace. Uh, come on. We were bound and asleep. We were incapable of being freed on our own means and in absolute need of deliverance, right? But a messenger of Adonai appeared. And in our case, it was the messenger, the servant and son of Adonai that appeared, Jesus Christ, and he shone his light in our captivity. The light of Jesus showed up in your prison cell to set you free. You were struck in the side and you were given a new walk. Heaven told you, quick, get up, waste no time, don't wait. And as you heeded his call, the chains that you were wearing prior to coming to Christ begin to fall off. Come on, that's good. We were all succumbing to the darkness of our times and the prison of our own doings. But praise Adonai. Yes. The light of God shines in the blackest of darkness and frees you. No matter how difficult dark or disparaging the circumstances, the light of God can illuminate to us the truth of God's word and cause us to rise. The light of God is not subverted or overcome by any amount of darkness, but rather the light of God has the ability to cut through the thickest of deceptions and pierce through it and illuminate to us the path of righteousness. The truth of what we're saying is that the light of God within you, church, cannot and will not be stopped. This is the truth that we need to know beyond our brain. We need it to sink into our very souls. Oh, I don't know. Are we grasping that? Oh, yes. Do you realize what happened in your dark times? Yeah. Yeah. When the light of God shined on you? Yeah. Yeah. 
The darkness could not overcome the light that was shining on you. Jesus Christ chose to shine his light on you, and it transformed everything in your life. And your response to that, your quickening, your hastening to get up and respond to the light of God was everything to you, and it transformed you in the midst of your darkness. You have to understand that this is what we need even today. Doesn't matter how long you've been born again. Doesn't matter how long you've known the Lord or how familiar with this word you've become. If you are in darkness, if you are in disparaging times, the light of God cannot be held back. You just have to respond to it, church. You have to get up quick. Hasten yourself and respond to the light of God shining and it will transform you no matter what. No matter how dark the situation is, no matter how heavy, no matter how bad you screwed it up, your hastening, your quickness to respond with action-oriented faith will transform you in the light of Christ and you will become a new person. This reminds us so much of 1 Samuel 3 in so many striking ways. In verse 1, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. But the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. You see, like in Peter's day, There was a wicked man leading the people of God, and his depraved sons were openly making a mockery of the truth of God. But despite of all this, the light of God was not defined by the level of darkness that was present. The light of God shone anyway. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. You see, Samuel, like Peter, rose up with haste and followed the Lord with fidelity and was used by God to be the solution for the dark and despairing times. Church, what dark and despairing times have befallen upon you? What situations are you in that you are actually the solution to? You just have to respond to the light of God in your life. You just have to be transparent to it. You have to open up to it. You have to submit to it and allow it to transform your life like it's done Samuel, Peter, and every man in the word of God. Let it strike you in the side, church. You see, men and women of God, how should you respond to such great deliverance? If you are experiencing the shackles of an evil ruler who has put you in bondage, then know that the darkness has never been a match for the light of God available to the heirs of his kingdom. Amen. John 1 says the darkness has not overcome it. Heed the call now to rise up And witness how the shackles slip and fall from your wrists. So that you are able then to run the race like the uncaged lion that you are truly and you are meant to be. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You guys want more light? Yes. Yes. Let's turn the verse 8. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandwich. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, 
and came to the iron gate leading to the city. Wow. It opened for them by itself. Come on. <laughs> and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left. Man. Wow. You will quickly notice that Luke recording here is his Luke is recording here something extraordinary. An inanimate object, an iron gate, is obeying the work of God. Oh. I mean, but why? So Psalms 114 has the answer. Starting in verse 1. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. So this time in Israel's history saw the people of God suffering under the oppression of Egypt. For Israel, this was an especially dark time that was full of forced labor, foreign gods, and despotic rulers. This was a dark time in Israel's history, but the light of God was still shining. Amen. The pillar of fire led them through the darkest parts of the night and revealed to them the path that Adonai had carved for them in the midst of darkness. When Israel trusted and obeyed the light of Adonai with haste, then they became his sanctuary on earth. They became the embodiment of His presence as they were being led by Him. Yeah. Verse 3 is the result of this. It says, The sea looked and fled. Yeah. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like ramps. The hills like lamps. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? <laughs> o Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like ramps. All hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Everything flees at the presence of God. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's inanimate or living. It flees at the presence of God. Everything in His creation obeys God's creation. When His people obey in action-oriented faith, they become His sanctuary on earth, and everything in creation submits to them. The seas split, mountains skip, and iron gates open. When we get moving in the will of God, yeah. there is nothing that can truly hinder us because the God of all creation is dwelling inside of us. Yeah. For reference, you probably should go back and listen to the devil and the deep blue sea sermon because it is a fantastic message on this subject. Yeah. The point is that when the light shines on you and you demonstrate trust, grounded obedience, in your actions, the darkness has no choice, but it actually flees. Come yeah. on. Let's take verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches mm. and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Wow, everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So at this point, we definitely have many other beautiful revelations to get to. But we want to pause for a moment and comment on the fact that this is not what all of the Jewish people wanted. Right. Like in verse 3, when it mentioned that the death of James pleased the Jews, this was most assuredly uh, a hyperbole, right? It was a hyperbole being used to convey that this pleased the Jewish leaders and a portion of the Jews dwelling in Jerusalem. Right. This couldn't mean all of the Jews because at this point there were tens of thousands of Jewish believers who did not want to see Peter executed. It's almost embarrassing that we have to make this point, yeah. but 
Careless and faithless men have always tried to look for a reason to rob Israel of their preeminence in God's plan. In any case, we have to move on to verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his anger. So first we would like to point out the prowess of Luke's writing. It seems to us that there is no purpose for Luke to be explicit about the house in which many people had gathered to pray, except that it is the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, a man who by the end of the chapter would be the new addition to Paul and Barnabas' ministry team as they returned to Antioch from delivering provisions to the believers in Judea. Yeah, and then a comical note, it is not every day that while being locked up in prison and awaiting for your public execution, you get miraculously delivered by an angel only to be locked outside by the people who have been praying for you and whom you love. They were probably wearing free Peter t-shirts. Yeah. Of course, this was not on purpose, but because Rhoda, the servant girl who came to the door, was so overjoyed that their prayers were being answered, that she didn't realize that Peter might not really want to be outside, potentially in view of those who would be looking for him. Moreover, not only did she not open the door immediately after recognizing Peter's voice, she was also delayed from coming back to open it as she engaged in an argument about whether indeed she was out of her mind or not. So verse 5 mentioned that the church was earnestly praying to God on Peter's behalf. However, it is safe to conclude that although they were bombarding the heavens asking for the release of their beloved brother and apostle, they were not quite ready for how effective their prayers would have been. It seems that those praying were quite aware of the darkness of the times and the intense security with which Peter was being held in prison. We say this because the text makes it clear that they found it more plausible to believe that Peter's angel would show up at their door rather than to believe wow. that Peter had indeed broke free from prison. But they were about to become better aware yeah. of the fact that earnest prayer by the saints is powerful and effective. Amen? Amen. It's much like Elijah's prayers were powerful and effective. Yeah. Listen to James 5.17. Elijah was a human being. Well, I love that it says that. Yeah. <laughs> Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. You see, the great prophet Elijah was a human being, just as we are. However, that is not all that he was. He was a righteous man, one that did not make a practice of sinning, but instead was righteous because he made righteous actions his practice. Being a righteous man, he prayed earnestly for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And his earnest prayer not only was heard, it was also answered. Similarly, the church was earnestly praying for Peter. They must have surely known that their good father was hearing their prayers. But 
They were about to find out just how miraculously their prayers would be answered. Oh yeah. This reminds us of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It is a glorious day when a verse that is commonly, commonly quoted on pillows and stamped on coffee mugs is instead written on our hearts the moment that we witness not only that God is able, but that He will do far more abundantly than all we ask, think, or imagine. It is a glorious day when we realize that the power of the one that is at work within us is greater than the power of the one that is work at work in the world. It may have taken Peter some knock, knock, knocking on Mary's door, but ultimately, the door was open. Yeah. But Peter kept on knocking. Yeah. yeah, come on. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Yeah, so again, on a humorous note, Peter certainly didn't imagine in this situation that he would have to put into practice his master's teaching about having the faith to knock until it's open. But he did. He kept on knocking until the discussion about whether Rhoda was out of her mind or Peter had an angel was finished. And after that argument, they came and opened the door and they were astonished. The girl who had just witnessed Peter pretty much raised from the dead, released from prison during Passover, and they found out they were right, the other disciples had to see it in order to believe it. Understandably, there must have been an incredible rejoicing when they saw Peter at the door with loud shouts of hallelujah! hallelujah. It must have been quite a commotion because Peter had to walk in and ask them to be quiet so that he could testify how the Lord brought him out of the darkness into marvelous light. <laughs> so after he was done describing the events, Peter directs the disciples to tell James about his release. Of course, Peter is not asking them to invoke James, son of Zebedee, from the dead. But instead, Peter is referring to James, the brother of Jesus. This is James. One of Jesus' brothers about whom John the Apostle says in John 7, 5, that not even his brothers had believed in him. Yeah. This is the same James of whom it is said that he and his brothers believed Jesus to be out of his mind in Mark 3, 21. This is the same James who, along with his mother and brothers, were once looking for Jesus. But Jesus, instead of stopping his ministry to give him his attention, answers who are my mother and my brothers? This is the same James who was nowhere to be found at the crucifixion of Jesus. Hence, Jesus entrusted his mother Mary into the care of his disciple John. However, James did not remain darkened in his understanding, but instead came to know the light that was in his brother Jesus, which was the light of all men. The James we're referring to in this chapter is already a transformed man. Acts 1.14 makes it clear that he, his brothers, and his mother Mary, along with the 11 disciples at the time, were among those who were devoting themselves to prayer in the upper room. 
Although he was not a disciple of Jesus during earthly ministry, he certainly became a disciple after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Indeed, Paul refers to James as an apostle in Galatians 1.19 when he says that on his trip to Jerusalem, he saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Hence, his mention by Peter in this verse indicates that James, the brother of Jesus, not only had stepped into the role of an apostle, but that he most probably had taken the place of James, the son of Zebedee, now that he was no longer with them. This point will be even made more clear when we arrive in Acts 15 and see him um, as a vital part of, of the Jerusalem council. James, the brother of Jesus, rose from being a man who only shared with Jesus the water of the womb to one who now shared in the blood of the covenant, being part of the team of apostles and leaders in the body of Messiah. This highlights the fact that although the execution of James, the son of Zebedee, may have come as a surprise to the body of Messiah, it definitely did not take Adonai by surprise, since he had already prepared a man by the same name who would rise to take his place. Even, though the, even through the darkest of times, and even through the loss of precious believers, the people of God and the kingdom of God is never at a disadvantage. Amen. For in God's mercy and in His sovereignty, and through the process of discipleship, He's able to raise another who would take the place of the first. Let's keep going in our text tonight. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So when Luke tells you that there was no small commotion, he means there was a great commotion among the soldiers. Yes. Similar to when the high priest had put the apostles in prison back in Acts chapter 5. The guards are found guarding, securely, empty cells. <laughs> Unfortunately for the 16 guards in cha the chapter tonight, the deliverance of Peter by an angel cost all of them their lives, or at least they were sent away. They ultimately paid the price of serving the pseudo-king of the Jews, Herod who is more of an antichrist figure who lords his authority over his subjects and executes them when they do not perform to his liking. The body of Christ, on the other hand, is experiencing the joy of serving the true king of the Jews, who shows no partiality and no diacrino, but who accepts anyone who fears him and calls on his name. Moreover, they are also experiencing the joy of knowing that even though they are going through the darkest of times, and even after the loss of a precious apostle and brother, the Father of Glory, Father of Glory, yeah. will not only hear the prayer of the righteous, but will answer them in the most miraculous ways. It's good to serve the one true King, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. So those who are his brothers, disciples, and servants of King Yeshua continued to display that their discipleship meant that not only would they all ultimately drink the same cup that their master had, but they would do it in the same way. The followers of the way did not simply witness about Yeshua. They were witnesses. We have been hinting at the next slide throughout the entire night, and it is now time to unveil the many ways in which Peter's life was a shining display of Jesus that lived inside of him. Let's look at some similarities between Jesus and Peter. Oh, wow. 
So we have Jesus in Luke 23. The ruler is a Herodian, and his name is Antipas. Well, in Acts 12.1, Peter is under a Herodian ruler, Agrippa II. In Luke 22.1, during the Feast of Passover and during Unleavened Bread, Acts 12 happens during the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. Luke 22.43, we have an appearance of an angel at Gethsemane to strengthen Jesus. In Acts 12.7, we have an appearance of an angel to free Peter. In Luke 22.54, we have an arrest, trial, and execution. In Acts 12.4, we have an arrest, trial, and intended execution. In Luke 24, we have a call to rise from the chains of death in Jesus' life. In Acts 12.7, we have the call to rise from iron chains that are holding Peter. In Luke 24.1 through 8, women are the first to witness Jesus alive. In Acts 12.13, a woman is the first to witness Peter alive. In Luke 24.11, the disbelief of other disciples who did not believe the woman. In Acts 12.15, we have the disbelief of other disciples who did not believe the woman. In Luke 24.37, we have the assumption that Jesus is not alive, but it is a spirit. In Acts 12.15, we have the assumption that Peter is not alive, but it is his angel. So these similarities between the life of Jesus and the life of Peter could not be made up by Peter, even if he tried. These just serve as a genuine witness of the Holy Spirit, testifying that the book of Acts is the actions of Jesus' body as empowered by the Holy Spirit. Come on, on, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, we know we all knew that from the beginning. So now, while Jesus lived in his fleshly tent, he told his disciples something in John 9, verse 5. He said, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So while Jesus was on earth, he displayed to us the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. However, having ascended to heaven and having seated at the right hand of the Father, he poured out his Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit by which he lived and he moved. The Spirit of Sonship by which we cried, Abba, Father. While Jesus was in the world, he was the light of the world. But having ascended to heaven, he raised and empowered his brothers to be conformed to the same image of Christ. So that in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 5.8, it says that now you are light in the world, walk as children of light. Yeah. Now that we have been set free from ruthless and vicious kings from, in the, from the kingdom of darkness, we are light in the world. The light of God does not ask darkness for permission to shine, but instead expels the darkness of the world. We are light in the Lord. Therefore, we must walk as children of light. Come on. Let's go ahead and take out the 20. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they, they now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Yeah, so Luke is weaving details into the scripture to help us understand that these times are dark. The church is in difficult times. The famine that was prophesied by Agabus, well, it's at its peak and tensions are high. People need food. While the church body 
is working to support each other. Herod is working to keep the people under his thumb. Worldly rulers are really just cowardly pawns. And they use this type of manipulative warfare like economic sanctions in order to retain their positions of power. Oh, wow. As sickening as that is, it is a reality that we see displayed in Herod's actions. When the people are in need, this overlord withholds provision and uses his position of power to serve his own purposes. In this section of Acts 12, we're witnessing the effect that this kind of leadership has on not just the people in Israel, but the neighboring countries as well, like Tyre and Sidon. And we have a slide for you that puts it succinctly. This is Tyre and Sidon. The Hellenistic, culturally Greek cities of Tyre and Sidon were dependent on Agrippa's territories for vital food supplies. He has been withholding trade from them, meaning they are not receiving the food that they're dependent on. And perhaps a special problem now, and then it references the prophecy from Agabus from Acts 11. So this is the fulfillment of that prophecy, and the people of Tyre and Sidon, having their source of provision withheld for them, are in dire straits. Tactics like this are often used in order to manipulate the people's loyalty to the emperor, whoever has the power in this case. Herod is using this tactic of withholding food to manipulate the people so that they are loyal to him. It is, it's pretty disgusting when you think about that. If, you, if your family was starving and the only person who had food was withholding it from you, seeking something greater from you, it's sickening. It's clear that Herod did not understand the scriptures and how they prophesy the demise of individuals who not only withhold good when it's in their power to give, but those who continually seek for opportunities of personal gain at the expense of other people by setting a trap for them. Look at this passage in Psalm chapter 7. Verse 14 says, He who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. Herod only has the perception of power. His despotic deception is leading him to dig his own grave, and all out of the violence that he poured out is about to be returned onto his own head. Now I want you to hear this. At the same time that Herod's satanic scheme is going on, Saul and Barnabas are traveling with provision for the people of God in Judea. That is why the chapter starts out with at this time and it ends with Paul and Barnabas fulfilling their mission. Luke wants you to know that while this king is withholding provision, the church of God is shining brightly in dark times and they are fulfilling the mission. You see, this is the example and model that we are to follow. In dark times, the church is always the cure for the world's problems. Not the government, not which way you vote, or which political party you subscribe to. It is the church of God that is the solution. The people of God uniting together. Why do you think the enemy wants to disrupt our unity so much? It's because the people of God uniting together to support each other is the solution to the seasons of famine on this world. Come on. The church does not 
sorry, the world doesn't have a famine of the word of God because the word of God is not shining. The world has a famine of the word of God because the church is not giving it to them. The devil wants us disbanding over crazy doctrinal errors when we should be uniting and shining as a body. You see, we have worked this evening to give you a clear picture of just how wicked these worldly leaders were and how dark this season in history truly was. However, while these kings claimed greatness for themselves, the true king was reigning through his people and their light is continuing to shine with more intensity at every turn. Luke is masterfully weaving details in this chapter to contrast the current darkness of the world system and its depraved leader to the light of the kingdom of God and its true leader. In our previous chapters, Lucas masterfully displayed the contrast of the corrupt leadership of the brick-and-mortar temple in Jerusalem. And now that the gospel is going out into all of the biblical world, Luke is carefully weaving details to display the true king of the world. Living and acting through his body, consisting of Jew and Gentile, shining his light into the darkness that overshadowed the entire world. So let's move on into our next verses where this contrast is going to reach its peak. And we want you to pay attention to this because this is what we have been aiming at the entire night. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Mm. Herod Agrippa, which is the Herod that we're reading about today, is the king of locality. He's the king of a specific region. He's illegitimately appointed, and his reign is temporal. Jesus, on the other hand, is the rightful king of kings and king of the Jews, and he rules over all in the kingdom that will never fade or pass away. We, as in Peyton, would love to go into all the medical details regarding Herod's death, but that is not within our purview tonight. Suffice it to say, yeah. Suffice it to say that uh, the Herods died in some pretty spectacular medical ways. Their monumentally horrendous lives were usually matched by their horrific deaths. We showed you at the beginning of our time together tonight that Herod the Great, Agrippa's granddaddy, suffered a horrendous death in which his entrails entrails were exulcerated. His privy member was putrefied and produced worms. Well, yeah. Much like his grandfather, Herod Agrippa died eaten by worms. The text describes the people proclaiming him to be a god and an angel of the Lord strikes him down. This was an instantaneous affliction and shows how frail Herod's life and his reign was. Yeah. Yeah. His pride and arrogance led to his sins mounting up before the Lord and his dark deeds brought judgment down on his head in a moment. Do you remember what 1 Timothy 5.24 says? 1 Timothy 5.24 The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Herod Agrippa's sins were obvious and it was fitting for Adonai to not let his sins trail behind him. <laughs> like Proverbs 11.10 says, because I always like a good proverb. Amen. When the wicked perish, 
There are shouts of joy! Herod's evil reign came to an end, and the true king is continuing to increase through his body on earth. Now, it's an amazing fact of this chapter that the angels of the Lord are active in carrying out the orders of Adonai. On one hand, an angel is dispatched from heaven, and he chose to rescue Peter. On the other hand, an angel is dispatched from heaven and comes to fulfill Herod's demise. This reminds us of a verse in Psalms. Psalm 37, picking up in verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the, earth, inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his, at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance. Our God is able to make a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. He will ensure that evildoers are cut off and that they don't see the light of life. On the other hand, he is also able uh, to ensure that the meek ones and the humble ones who are righteous and wait for the Lord actually inherit the land that he promised them. Moreover, we want to highlight the two types of kings that you should take note of this evening. One king, like Herod, he rules the darkness and manipulates his followers. And then another king, Jesus, who rules in the light and shines through his followers. The king of darkness oppresses the people. He puts them in prison, binds them with chains, and prevents them from prospering. <coughs> but the king of light, he sets the people free, yeah. brings them out of prison, yeah. breaks their chains, and causes them to prosper even in the midst of famine. Come on. Yeah. He gives them such an abundance that they have enough to bless all the people who oh, are in need. Yeah. Church, this is our king. Yeah. And you are his body on earth to bring times of refreshing and illumination to those who are still bound over to this wicked king of darkness. Man, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. But the contrast that Luke is making doesn't just stop there. Luke is faithfully letting us know that while Herod is wickedly using the famine to his own advantage, Jesus is using his followers to bring aid to the brothers in Judea. Some of the details of the story may escape the casual reader of the text, but not so much you guys. You are scholars in your own right. You may have noticed a few things that are quite interesting. The parallels between this chapter and the rest of the Bible are astounding. To the astute Bible student, you may have noticed that this famine is not much different than the famine prophesied in Genesis 44 with Joseph. God is using the famine in Genesis 44 to bring glory to his servant Joseph and elevate him to a position of ruler of the land under Pharaoh and give him the name Zaphonoth Paneah, which means savior of the world. And God did this to provide food for the people of God. In Acts, God is using the famine to elevate the name of Jesus as the savior of the world and provide for the people of God. It is even more beautiful to realize that Joseph foreshadowed Jesus in the sense that Joseph was considered dead and then lived again. Jesus actually died, resurrected, and is now shining his light to the world through Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark in the midst of a famine. 
Come on. And they are bringing provision to Jerusalem from the brothers in Antioch. Now also consider that in Genesis, Jews had to go to Gentiles in Gentile lands to get the provision. Now, in Acts, Gentiles are sending provisions to the Jews. Amen. Can anyone see the beauty of Romans 15, 27 here? Yeah. yeah. So we already highlighted how Herod, who was withholding the much-needed food during a famine, dies eaten by worms. And as we mentioned earlier, actually this detail is too good to pass up. So when we consider worms, this passage comes to mind. Mark 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. So if only Herod's predecessor would have listened to Jesus, then Herod now might not have been in this wormy position. He did not make the attempt to radically amputate the darkness from his life, and therefore he was eaten by worms, which sets up a visceral contrast to both kings in this chapter. In the end of the age, Jesus, the true king, is going to be seen in his full glory on the Mount of Olives, while Herod is going to be seen not so far away, hell, Gehenna, still being eaten by worms. Luke's portrayal of these two kings serve to show the kind of distinction that God always makes. For those that love the darkness and refuse to come into the light, they will stay in darkness and share in the same fate as Herod. But for those who are desperately trying to walk in the light, even though they have to fight for it, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 13, 40 says this. This starts in this moment, church. This starts now. With us making every attempt to live in the light that, that is in Goshen, in the midst of darkness. For the ones who trust in the Lord and are listening to His voice, there will always be a light on them in dark times. Always. When we live in this way, seasons of famine become more than a test that the people must endure with a meager hope of survival. Seasons of famine actually become simply a present problem that we are the solution to. Yeah, come on. Verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Yeah, someone say hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Luke just walked us through all the events that transpired and has landed on the supernatural conclusion that follows the church of Jesus Christ everywhere it goes. Tonight, we have seen the glorious martyrdom of James, the imprisonment of Peter, a worldwide famine, and Herod deposed by angels from heaven. Many would say that these are dark times, but we view it only as progress in an ever-expanding ever expanding kingdom of glory. Verse 24 is our fourth progress report in the book of Acts. Let's look at that slide just to jog our memory. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Every word of the Bible is God-breathed, it was written here for a purpose. Yeah. As you read 
but the word of God increased and multiplied, it demands shouts of hallelujah. Hallelujah! When you consider the historical backdrop of the book of Acts, and you read verse 12 with the illusion of the first time, you can see that the deeds of Jesus' body on earth are not without their supernatural witness. Church, it's in our seasons of famine where our physical supplies are decreasing that the word of God inside of us actually increases. Amen. It's in our seasons of darkness, in those dark times where we feel isolated and unproductive. That is when the light of his word begins to rise in our hearts. And that becomes a source of illumination and provision for others oh. who are in need and bound over to darkness. Church, we have just a few minutes, and we want you to stay with us. Just for a moment, remember when the light of heaven first shone inside your prison cell. Remember when the light from heaven set you free from your chains. Whenever his light broke your addictions. When it broke unhealthy relationships. When it redeemed you. You remember when he filled you with his spirit. And his spirit in you became a stream of water. Yeah. Yeah. You know how he has fed you with bread from heaven every time that you opened his word from yeah. that moment forward. Yes. It's true. Remember all those ancient enemies and the kings of darkness that Jesus has crushed in your life. Do you see it? Yeah. How important is water in a famine? The most. How important is bread in a famine? How important is it that ancient and evil rulers are put to death during a famine? Do you see what's happening in your life, church? The Lord is famine-proofing your faith. Come on. He is building yes. Come on. Come on. As we come to our final verse, we want to encourage you to seek out ways that you can be a source of illumination in the darkness of other people's lives. Take time to notice the ones you're ministering to. Take time to notice that man walking alone in the store, that woman standing alone, or that co-worker that you never talked to, because the ones that you're ministering to and those that you're Ministering beside, well, they become your traveling companions to the ends of the earth tomorrow. Church, let's take our last verse. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also yeah. called Mark. So John, also called Mark, is a character that is difficult to pin down in the scriptures. It is a widely held belief that this is the Mark who wrote the second synoptic gospel. It is also likely that he is the one that Peter refers to as his son in 1 Peter 5.13, his son in the faith. There are commentaries like New Unger's Bible Dictionary that comment on how Peter sent Mark to Egypt where he founded the church in Alexandria. Church Church tradition says that John Mark, following in the footsteps of Jesus, was martyred during the reign of Nero. As we approach a close to this evening, we want you to see that Luke has been masterful at leaving hints in the text. He likes to introduce characters subtly in earlier chapters to the reader and then brings them to the forefront of the narrative as the chapters progress. He did this with Saul, and he's doing it again with John Mark. The way that Luke hints at these up-and-coming ministers of the gospel shows us an encouraging depiction of their growth and maturity as they walk along the way of holiness. Come on. May our walks continually increase 
in zeal and effectiveness as theirs did. We have seen the church rise to overcome the odds in the middle of unprecedented darkness. We have seen Jewish and Gentile believers both sacrifice to supply for the needs of their brothers. And now in verse 25, Saul and Barnabas have completed the mission that they began in Acts 11. And our final passage this evening has been tried, tested, and proven truer through every dark period of history. There is no other source of light that can endure and overcome the darkness of the world. That light is the spirit of Jesus in you, and you are his hands and feet that are being filled with bread from heaven to carry from your Antioch to the church gathering in Jerusalem. Our last scripture that we want to read to you as a closing thought, and then we're going to hand it to the pastors, is Psalm 33, 18 through 19. It says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Church, we want to tell you that famines and dark days are going to happen. If a light is shown upon you during dark times and you have been free from your bonds, the very least you can do, though, is finish your mission. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand your feet, church. Is it hard for us to believe that there are dark days that are ahead of us? No. No, because there are dark days that we're standing in. Yeah. Beth, would you put up Ephesians 5, verses 8 and 9 for us? For you were once darkness. Not only were we in darkness, surrounded by darkness, but the truth is, is we were once darkness. But now, somebody say, but now. Oh, man, can you feel how good that feels? But now, you are light in the Lord. God's light is so becoming a part of us that we are just known as light in the Lord. So you know what we do? We live as children of light. Next verse, please. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The ESV in verse 8 says, walk as children of the light. That's what we do. We realize that the darker things are around us, the brighter the light that we are. You are the solution to what the darkness in this world needs. That's why we don't run. That's why we don't back down. That's why we don't get stuck in our own lack of confidence because you are light. You rise up and you realize the worse the famine, the darker the time, the more that people around needs you and needs what you have, needs what you've been transformed into. Man, what a great time for the church of the living God. This is literally what we were made for. I am looking around the room and I'm seeing faces beaming. Amen. Amen. I, I'm, I'm kind of blinded on my left side, Red's face and Gabby's face. <laughs> Why? Because what we're hearing is the truth about who we are. Yeah. Our identity. Now, when you look at Peter, and particularly in this chapter, is he a son of God? Yes. yes. Is he a participant in a royal priesthood? Yes. yes. 
You notice that the angel tells him to get up, put on his clothes and sandals, and to wrap his cloak around him? He put around him not just physical and tangible items of a wardrobe. What he was clothed, sandaled, and wrapped in is the identity of Christ. A royalty that was greater than that of Herod. Come on. So what about you? Think of it this way. Peter is a son. He's part of a royal priesthood. And he is imprisoned based on an injustice. Right? He's preaching the gospel. He's bound in chains because of an injustice. And yet, like he writes in his epistles, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Then, in the prison cell and afterwards, with the death of Herod. What do you do as a son, children of the light, when you are imprisoned in injustice? That, that is the dark time that God has chosen you to be light. Come on. That is the tohu vavoku of Genesis 1 that God is choosing for you to be that light that dawns upon that darkness and displaces it. Peter says very clearly in his epistle, 1 Peter 4.14, if anyone should suffer as a Christian, let him rejoice. Amen. Rejoice that he bears that name. Come on. Hallelujah. That name. So I'll ask you again. Are you a son? Yes. yes. Are you part of a royal priesthood? Yes. Are you children of the light? Yes. Then do not be surprised whenever God puts you in dark situations. That's what you're supposed to be. Yes. So with a big smile. Practice that with a big smile. Radiant smile. Oh, yeah. Not so much like that, Keith. Yeah. No more <laughs> That is what's supposed to beam from your soul when you're in those dark moments. Praise God that you bear that name of being a little Christ. So with smiling faces, with joyful hearts, let's rejoice in the current time that we stand in and the one that we are being prepared for, a famine-proof thing. Adam Core, pray joyfully for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We're thankful, Lord God, for the light that you have shown inside of us. You've raised us up out of darkness, Lord God, and you have put a new song in our mouth. Oh God, we will sing praises to the one who has set us free. Lord, we love you, Lord. Lord, we will walk out confidently because of what you have put inside of us and what you have called us to do. We do this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.